This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. We're back from another seasonal break with discussions about sexual identity at the Olympics and the subtleties of politics and economics in Cuba. But first, Jim Singer is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Health officials in Honduras report a jump in birth defects this month, problems they link to the Zika virus. Researchers link Zika to microcephaly, a condition that causes babies to be born with abnormally small skulls. Citizens groups in Honduras are calling for the government to change its strategy in fighting the virus. Angela Rovello is the leader of the youth group calling for the government to make free or low-cost birth control available during the Zika outbreak. We see the statistics and the promotion of abstinence isn't enough to decrease the pregnancy rate in Honduras. What the government should promote is access to birth control so women can really have an option to avoid getting pregnant. Critics of the Honduran government say perhaps 70% of the country has no access to birth control. Health officials in Honduras also report at least six deaths in the country connected to the Zika virus. The main opposition group in Nicaragua is asking voters to boycott that country's elections this fall. Earlier this summer, Nicaragua's Supreme Court disallowed the leader of the country's liberal alliance from running for president. The court removed various opposition lawmakers from the country's National Assembly. The court also picked the liberal candidate it found acceptable to stand for election. The court is dominated by judges from the Sandinista Party, the same socialist party that rules the country. The leading Sandinista, President Daniel Ortega, is running for his fourth term in office. Despite the legal and political maneuvering, polls show Ortega has an 80% approval rating. Corruption at the Olympics this week. Police in Rio arrested the head of the European Olympic Committee and accused him of heading a massive scalping ring. The Olympic official, Patrick Hickey, says he's taking a temporary leave of his duties while he fights the charges. Prosecutors say Hickey organized the sale of prime seats to the game at higher-than-list prices. They say his scalping ring took in more than $3 million. Despite what police call a highly successful and organized criminal organization, many tickets remain unsold for the games. More than a million tickets found no takers. About half of the unsold tickets were for Olympic soccer matches staged outside of Rio de Janeiro. And now a story of Olympic success. Puerto Rico can now boast of its first Olympic gold medal. Monica Puig took home the gold in women's singles tennis. Although Puerto Rico is a territory owned by the United States, it competes in various international competitions independently. Although Puerto Rico has fielded teams in various sports in the Olympics for 68 years, this was its first time to bring home the gold. Puig was also the first woman to win a medal for Puerto Rico in any of those Olympic competitions. We'll have more discussions of these Olympics coming later. For Latin Pulse, I'm Jim Singer. And now some news about our newscaster, Chorsey Martin, and why he's not with us this week. Chorsey died this week. He was a staff employee and graduate student at Webster University. 
He was 41 years old. So far, authorities have no details on what caused his sudden death. Chorsey will be sorely missed on this program. And now another advisory to our listeners. The next part of our program includes frank discussions of sexuality and may include terms that some in the audience could find offensive. We'll be discussing LGBT issues at the Olympics. And for those who don't follow modern acronyms, that stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender LGBT. Our guest, Jim Buszynski, is with OutSports, a website that advocates for LGBT athletes. Buszynski says although a record number of LGBT athletes are competing in Rio, homophobia in Brazil remains an issue for athletes there. Of note, we conducted this interview just before the U.S. women's soccer team was eliminated from Olympic competition, a team with one openly LGBT player. Buszynski spoke to us via Skype from Los Angeles. I know there have been problems with homophobia in Brazil in general. Uh, I know a Brazilian athlete who has talked to me about the climate for gay athletes in Brazil, which is still, he said it's mixed. On, on his own personal experience, he played volleyball. It was very positive. But he said to make the national team, there was this suggestion that if they knew your sexual orientation and it was gay, you would not have a chance. And it was all sort of unspoken. So he said basically, he now, he now plays college volleyball in the United States, and he said he thinks that Brazil is definitely behind the times when it comes to that. But he never felt personally threatened, and none of the athletes are experiencing any difficulties about their sexual orientation in Brazil. And actually, there was a Brazilian rugby player yesterday, a woman who proposed to her girlfriend uh, you know, right, on, right on the field after their game ended. So there's some positive uh, experiences. I think there are five openly... Uh, LGBT, well, there's no T's, LG or B, uh, Brazilian athletes right now, uh, four of them women and one male diver. Well, well, let's let's talk about the T then, transgender. Nike is running an ad during these Olympics um, that, that puts a spotlight on transgender athletes. Uh, what's your thought about that ad campaign? Well, it's kind of groundbreaking. We've covered Chris Mosier, the athlete, for years. I think that's how they kind of discovered him eventually because he's now a elite level do athlete which is running and biking it's the, there's no tri part in the uh, in, in that there's no swimming um, and he's you know he competes in international competitions that is not an Olympic sport but it's a recognized uh, world sport and for Nike to do that and show the ad during the Olympics is pretty groundbreaking there are no openly transgender athletes right now in Rio it doesn't mean that probably odds are some none are competing because it's become such a public thing that people would kind of know that uh, but that's sort of the next sort of barrier to break is to have an openly transgender athlete competing. Let's go back to what you said about that uh, Brazilian volleyball player. Um, I'm taking that he's not out and not on the Brazilian team. So there are still some concerns about athletes in Brazil and what they're able to say about their sexuality. Yeah, he was out to his own team. Uh, I, I don't know the levels in Brazil, but there's the pro league, which is the big deal. And then there's, they don't really have colleges. There's more like club teams. And the idea is they're feeder systems and you would go up. Well, he was in one of those club teams. And he said he had other, he had other teammates who were gay. Everybody knew it. He was totally supported. But at the national level, the idea is basically if they know you're gay, they're not going to pick you, but they won't say that openly. It's sort of the thing that people kind of all know without you know, it being spelled out. Um, but he said, in a sense, that he's hoping that the, these five openly gay athletes in Brazil are a sign of the times that things are changing in Brazil. 
because it has a split culture. You have the uh, the parade, the Pride Parade in Sao Paulo, which is the largest in the world, and the city loves it and embraces it. At the same time, Human Rights Watch says an estimated one LGBT person is killed in Brazil on average each day. So there is that duality that goes on, and sports is sort of in the middle. They've never had a major soccer star, for example, come out as gay, which would be a big deal. And yet a newspaper polled uh, Brazilian soccer players and said 56% of them know uh, that there are gay players in the sport itself. So it's kind of like the U.S. isn't much farther ahead because we don't have anybody who's open in the NFL, NBA, NHL, or Major League Baseball, but people know that there are gay players in these sports. Just to get them to come out publicly is the final frontier. What you've been talking about, this duality that that you mentioned in Brazil, embracing um, the LGBT community in Sao Paulo, um, but yet danger to to others and in perhaps other places. Um, I, I wonder if that's the difference between um, cosmopolitan cities and metropolitan areas like Sao Paulo, like Rio, and then rural Brazil. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I'm not an expert on the subject. I know what I know, though, and I think that's what the, this volleyball player said, that the cities are much more friendly, much more embracing than rural areas, especially if you have religion that has a strong hold on it. Not unlike the U.S., where it's easier to be out in a place like I, like Los Angeles or New York versus a place in Mississippi. But even then, you hear weird stories where we've had so many stories from people in these really conservative towns who've been embraced by everybody. So it's kind of like in the gay rights thing. It's kind of like two steps forward and a half step back. But you know, eventually, we're all going. It's all going in a forward direction, but it comes in fits and starts. So you'll have an example on the one hand of something positive, and then you'll have something negative. And in the case of the U.S., you had something horribly negative, like the Pulse nightclub shooting, that was definitely a homophobic attack, uh, regardless of whether or not it was terrorism by a definition. It was a homophobic attack on a place where LGBT people congregated. Uh, and yet we have gay marriage and we have, you know, a record number of 40. We have now 46 openly LGBT athletes in Rio, which is um, twice as many as there were in uh, London four years ago. We have uh, two um, athletes on the U.S. women's team, women's soccer team, who are out, I believe, in that particular total. And, and we've seen some examples in some of these earlier games where some of the crowd chants have been characterized as um, as homophobic. And I wonder if you have some thoughts about that. Well, the term is called bicho, which I've been told. I mean, can you, can you tell me exactly what you think the term means? Well, what I've seen it translated as would be equal to prostitute. Um, but And this has caused some, um, I would say, uh, some uproar in the Brazilian community of, it means one thing in one place, but in a sports stadium, um, that term prostitute mean means something very different. Yeah, and same thing with the Spanish word puto, which is now taken by a lot of gay people as a slur, but then you have other people saying, well, no, it just means pros male prostitute, but not in an anti-gay way, which I don't buy. But what's interesting about bicha is that was chanted at, it was heard on the field by reporters and athletes, so there's no doubt that it was said and it was said at games where there were openly lesbian players. Now the question becomes, did the fans know these were openly lesbian players, or are they using this because this is what they use as a chant? Because I have watched men's basketball, and I have heard it. I swear I've heard it because I've turned my volume up 
super loud at men's basketball games during free throws. I heard it at a beach volleyball game yesterday. So it seems like it's the general common chant a lot of these crowds are using has nothing to do maybe with them pinpointing someone being gay. But we had American soccer player Megan Rapinoe, who was an openly uh, gay person, say that bothered her. She was hearing it on the field during their first game, excuse me, and it bothered her to hear that. And so when you have openly gay athletes and they're hearing this thing, it does, it does sort of make them wonder if they're being targeted, even though probably the fans have no clue about, you know, that she was openly lesbian or not. So it's a little bit of a difficult situation because you, I think a lot of it's just sensitivity. Would you, want to hear, would you want to hear someone chanting that at a stadium, you know, whore or slut in an American stadium? You really wouldn't want to hear that. It's not a very nice thing to hear. So regardless if it's directly homophobic or if it's simply some slur, it definitely sounds misogynistic to me in some way. And so I think it does point out that, that the crowds in Brazil can be a bit rougher than what you might hear in a stadium in the United States. But I, I think it also points out that, that, that this is still debatable territory, that, that we want to unnerve you as an athlete. We also know that, that um, the Brazilian crowds are, that, that they are conscious of social media. And so um, we certainly hear um, anti-chance against the goalie of the women's team, who uh, I do not believe is, is, is also in that same gender-specified area, but they chant against her because she had posted some things on social media about Zika. Yes. And so that became one of the chants. So the crowds in Brazil um, are, I think, aware of what some of these athletes and where their backgrounds are and, and certainly have taken to uh, chanting against them if they don't like them. Yeah, although when I hear it in a men's basketball game on a free throw, I'm throwing it, why would they yell beat you at a men's <laughs> basketball player? It makes it kind of made no sense to me, but I, I, I heard it at least three consecutive free throws during the China game. So this is, this is a, a bit of um, a characterization, I guess, would, uh, would be of the, of the Brazilian crowds. Maybe it's just a term, um, a term that makes people uncomfortable, and therefore it's, it's one to throw out there when you want to break an athlete's concentration. That's actually the best definition I heard, that it, it's a general one to unnerve somebody. So that's what they use, beach ya. And so I've heard, I, I, I'm going to watch more of the events where there's pauses like beach volleyball and basketball to see if it's heard during a random Lithuanian-Spain basketball match. You know, I'd be really surprised if I hear it there. But uh, it is kinda, it's kind of a fascinating subtext to all this. I find this interesting, though, the, the, the media coverage of homophobia in these games and and how it's framed if i go to general media and and read about it in the new york times or elsewhere i'm not going to read about that term um and yet you have freely used that term the advocate magazine which also um is online and advocates for the lgbt community uh in the united states and internationally certainly has no problem with using that term and so i i wonder how you can actually have these conversations about what makes people in the LGBT community uncomfortable. Um, what, what, where are the boundaries in this discussion? Well, I think our position at Outsports has always been we will run the slur. We want people to know exactly what was said because if you call someone a, I'll just use it, a faggot in a way that could be more harsh than if you called them a baby or a sissy or something. You know, I mean, a certain term that might someone say an anti-gay slur. Some other people say, well, I don't really feel that as offensive. So we've always, 
we've always used the slur because I think not using it as people kind of wondering, well, what the hell did he say? What was said to that person? Because it, it, words do matter, and the specific words matter, so we've had no compunction about using it. We think that's how people understand. This is exactly what they were chat. This is exactly what was said, either by a crowd or by an individual, so we've never kind of hid from it. I think some of that in the old school media is kind of just vestiges of being really prim and proper, like the New York Times still calling somebody Mr. You know, Mr. Hitler today <laughs> invaded Poland, which is you know, the kind of terms they still use. We just don't buy that anymore, that we, will, we want people to know what the slur is, so then they can debate it. Well, in our culture, beaches actually doesn't really mean it, you know, it, it, as opposed to they use a gay slur. Well, for all I know, in Portuguese, there might be 20 gay slurs. Well, which one do they use? So I think you want to be specific, because that is the only way people will understand what it exactly was said. Thank you so much. Our guest today, Jim Buzinski, the founder of OutSports, a media voice for LGBT athletes who joins us via Skype from Los Angeles. Thanks for being our guest on Latin Pulse. Well, thanks, Rick. Coming up, analyzing Cuba's economic problems. Stay with us. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life. An amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Our shout-out this week goes to our listeners in New York City. Our listening group in New York was our second largest this past week, behind only our listeners in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. in Northern Virginia. So we say thank you very much. To all of our listeners in the Big Apple and elsewhere around the globe. Earlier this summer, Cuba's President Raul Castro fired his economic minister, blaming him for the recent downturn in the Cuban economy, despite the increasing number of tourists headed to the island. Dan Hellinger of Webster University gave us his insights on the politics and economics of the communist country. Hellinger has traveled extensively in Cuba during the past year. We recorded our conversation on location earlier this summer here on the campus of Webster University. They're struggling with some forces beyond their control. Venezuela has reduced its supply of oil, so they've got to deal with energy shortages. They probably won't be as acute, thank goodness, as what they faced in the 90s, but they're looking ahead to that. Um, they've, they've just had, you know, it's an enormous problem making, a tra- making this economic transition. A good example are the farmer's markets. When you, uh, I've been to Cuba four or five times in the last few years, and I could see the, these urban farmer's markets growing. So you could go, and if you had the dollars or the, the convertible currency, you could buy anything you wanted to fresh there, really good food. Um, well, that, that and the tourist industry meant that there was less food available for a lot of the state stores and the supply networks. So how do you balance between, yeah, the tourist industry generates dollars, um, you, you've created demand for high quality food, and at the same time, somehow, you've got to get food through the supply system to the people that aren't benefiting. Well, the easy answer is increased production. Well, two things have happened. One is Cuba's been afflicted by a serious drought which is herd agriculture. And the second thing is they still haven't been willing to go far enough in terms of creating um, 
uh, abilities for farmers to get the inputs. Uh, they haven't created a wholesale market. They haven't created cooperatives that can adequately service the agricultural sector. So that's just that's just one example, um, but it should suffice to indicate that, that it's not so much so. And, and I should point out, we have very competent people here. This is not like, I don't think the, the Cubans are uh, have a bunch of people who are unaware of these dilemmas. Um, but boy, this is a hard thing to solve. Political reform. I'm really curious to see what's going to happen in 2018 because they're going to have to choose a new president. The Cuban system works in an indirect way in which on the governmental side, uh, the, uh, pr the National Assembly chooses the Council of State and the Council of State in turn chooses the president. President is usually also General Secretary of the Communist Party, and I think it's somewhat of an exaggeration to say the party itself does the governing, but it certainly is the most important base of power within the country. All right. So how is the successor going to be chosen this time? And I don't think there's going to be open elections, but I would not be surprised to see some sort of referendum on the parties and the National Assembly's choice to see whether or not Cubans accept that person. That would be a good step forward. So are we then talking about the possibility of some real democratic movement in Cuba instead I think of it's a inevitable. dictatorship? Well, you know, when you say instead of a dictatorship, I, I find that too easy a terminology to apply to Cuba. There is a central figure, Raul, and before that is Brother Fidel, and you can make the case that that's a dictatorship. What I find troubling about that is it fails to realize just how much grassroots kind of consultation and politics and participation that there is. Now, in the end, I still think that it's lacking in choice. Cuba is more democratic in, a particip in many ways, participatory ways, than the United States is. It's much less democratic than the United States and most liberal democracies are in terms of choosing national leadership. So, so I, I think almost inevitably, as Cuba liberalizes economically, slowly but surely, almost inevitably I do think there will be political liberalization. I don't think this is China where you're going to be able to hold it back. It's a smaller country that should facilitate it as opposed to, let's say, China. Um, it also mean there are also large sectors of new sectors of Cuban civil society that have been created. People working the cooperatives, people who are part of the Cuenta Propista, like it's 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 like something like a fifth of the workforce now working on their own account. Some of them own businesses. Some of them work for these small little businesses. Um, you're going you know people are going to want to have a say over their future. Cubans are well-educated. They've been told they live in a democracy. Um, they have, uh, you can see, increasingly more active and critical media within Cuba. The Internet functions more and more within the country, and people are on it. So I think it's going to be, I, I, I think the Cubans are only going to be patient for a while. The other thing to do is look at the neighborhood, as um, uh, Mark Frank, who I think is the best reporter come doing work in Cuba these days. He usually writes for Reuters. Um, look at the neighborhood. You know, it's, it's, it's a neighborhood in which most countries, to some degree, are democratic. That includes Venezuela, 
Mexico, Colombia, a lot of places where you could say, oh, that democracy is really icky. <laughs> but <laughs> that's a very technical term. But if, you, but if you look at it, it's the case that Cuba is in that neighborhood. So I think all these things mean a transition. What I can't predict is how quickly. Let's talk about something that's, that's really on their doorstep. Well, when we discuss the idea of tourism, and, and you put that on the table, now that we know direct flights are about to start from a dozen U.S. cities to Havana, yeah. what, what does that say? Are the Cubans ready for this inevitable influx of the U.S. tourists? Not really. They're not ready in terms of infrastructure more than anything. They have to, and the other impact is going to be the more tourists come, the more dollars in the economy. How the, the government would like to be like a sponge that absorbs those dollars and then uses them for social programs that Cuba is so famous for in healthcare, education, etc. But that's going to be pretty hard to do. And that's also going to increase inequality. So there's a problem that they're not quite ready for. Um, the other thing, though, is infrastructure. There aren't enough hotels. In a way, that's good because it means that a lot of other Cubans get the benefit, not just the big hotels. But it also means the infrastructure in cities throughout the country, including Havana, is going to be strained. The transportation infrastructure, uh, there's tourists, you know, when they announced the recent energy cuts that are going to be made, they made it clear that the tourism sector would be spared those cuts. Um, if you're going to be, your refrigerator is going to be shut down for a couple hours, you know, or um, a week, you're, but you know that all the tourist sector is functioning, what kind of attitudes is that going to generate within Cuba. Um, and then finally, you've got this, you know, Cuba, it's not so much the flights to Cuba, because right now you've got charter flights. It's the big cruise boats. You know, it's that kind of tourism, the ugliest, worst kind of tourism, where people live, don't even ever, you know, step off this, the boat just long enough to walk around downtown Havana. A lot of Cubans are there to sell them all kinds of cheap crap, like they do in Puerto Rico and the rest of the Caribbean. Uh, the environmental problems that big cruise boats bring, you know, and the first, they still aren't getting the biggest ones, thank goodness, but they're debating how to handle that. And I don't think, I mean, I think if they're desperate for dollars, if, for example, they have to buy more oil, that's going to put pressure on them to allow it in. You put on the table this question of inequality, and certainly you've been to Cuba multiple mm -hmm. times in the past two years. This program went to Cuba last fall. And the one thing that, that is apparent to me, mm -hmm. as someone who hadn't been to Cuba for a time, yeah. that you're right about your assessment of the tourist sector, that the highest quality food, the, some of the best tourist experience you can have in the world, mm -hmm. you can have in Havana now. Yeah. It wasn't that way 20 years ago. Right. So are we going to see more inequality creeping into the Cuban system? I think it's almost inevitable. It's a question of how fast and how much. The government's ability and the government, I mean, there seems to be a lot of people who still deeply believe in the revolution. I don't mean just, you know, ideological Marxist-Leninists. I mean people who care about the revolution. This is still a country that has a healthy dose of, of concern about Amer American penetration of their culture. Cubans are, are well-educated. They welcome Americans. I think they a lot of things they like about America. At the same time, you know, Cubans that go and come back talk about 
what this country is like. The recent events, you know, with uh, particularly with Afro-Cubans, when they read the news um, or hear about the news, you know, to serve, some of them may think, oh, this is just Cuban propaganda when they hear about police killings or they hear about police being killed. You know, that's going to make people open their eyes a little bit. I, I wouldn't give up entirely hope that Cubans will at least find some ways to ameliorate the worst of the inequalities, to maintain a social net. I think, you know, inequalities could increase at the same time, if, but if they can keep a basic social net, keep that intact, that would be an accomplishment. Thanks again, Dan Hellinger of Webster University and the Center for Democracy in the Americas, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thanks, Dan. My pleasure, Greg. Thanks for joining us for Latin Pulse this week and now a programming advisory. Latin Pulse will be taking another seasonal break next week, but we'll be back online September the 2nd. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's Latin Pulse, all one word, at gmx.com. If you're looking for earlier editions of our program, we're available in other locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Henty Flow. And as always, you can find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website. You can find it at linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin dash pulse. That's linktv.org slash Latin dash pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. This program is dedicated to the memory of Chorsey Martin. For Technical Director Jim Singer, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2016 Las Rocas Productions. Music